Good morning, and welcome to episode. Uh, two, you see, I'm at, see what happens. I'm at a loss. Take two, one, three. Two, one, three. Uh, no. Good morning, and welcome to episode two, one, two of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh, and we're here for Email Wednesday. Ben, you live in Manhattan. Are you in the two, one, two? Uh, I guess I would be, but I don't have a landline right now. Um, so I'm a six, four, six. I'm just a cell, cell only person. Where, where is six, four, six? I don't know. It's, it's like the, the cell number in this area. I was, I was a two, one, two growing up and my uh-huh. mom is a two, one, two. Did you ever refer to, did you ever say that you represent the two, one, two or, or anything along those? Uh, no. Did you ever? <laughs> I have. Drop two one two as like some sort of affiliation. I didn't. I think there are too many people with that affiliation. It's too high profile. I see. Um, so we have some questions. You have some questions, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, that you're going to go over. But uh, before before you get to the questions, can you please just can we note uh, that Eddie emailed extremely important information about Jose Canseco? <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> uh, which we don't have to discuss. We won't discuss. But it it is extremely important. Uh, he points out that Jose Canseco is listed as the Fort Worth Cats third baseman. <laughs> he is playing third base. Jose Canseco, 49, playing third base. Mm-hmm. Moving Okay. Uh, all right. First question comes from Kevin in Princeton. Uh, he says, gentlemen, a few days ago, Miguel Cabrera hit a warning track fly ball that came down before the outfield wall but bounced off of Michael Bourne's glove and over the fence. Not only was this scored as a home run, but I haven't even found anyone questioning whether that ruling was appropriate instead of charging Bourne with an error. Rule 10.12 says an error should be charged to a fielder whose misplay permits a runner to advance one or more bases. Even if you think that the wall interfered with Bourne's attempt or that it wasn't a routine catch, those words strongly suggest this play should have been at most a double and a two-base error because to prevent a home run, all Bourne had to do was literally nothing. Mm-hmm. Given that, <laughs> given that the line, he had to do. He did have to do something. If he had done yeah, nothing, then Cabrera would have right, just run forever. He had to pick forever. up the ball and, and throw it in at some point. Um, given that the line between hit and error is subjective and often arbitrary, and given that we're willing to accept a home run on a clear misplay like this without batting an eye, is it time to get rid of fielding errors entirely? You might have to keep some throwing errors for accounting purposes, such as when players advance additional bases as a result of bad throws. I think it's uh, pro- it's I think it I think yeah, since both you and I work for Baseball Prospectus, I think it's house house uh, uh, editorial position to be against the air as a as a measurement. So I think we're both against it. Is that right? Yeah, I'm I'm against it. I'm just trying to think of whether there's any value to preserving it just for the historical continuity of it. Well. Yeah. So here's my question, and we can talk about that as well. But um, somebody, I was talking about this with somebody at at my softball game recently. Uh, how do you explain to somebody who is not, uh, you know, a super in the weeds stat head, uh, why? Because it seems pretty obvious to most people, I think, that uh, a ball that should be fielded cleanly by you know any position player uh, is an error. I mean, people people don't see. Uh, a, a bobbled ground ball as being equivalent in any way to a line drive uh, up the middle. So, so how do you explain this to, you know, your your uncle or whatever at Thanksgiving when it when it inevitably comes up? Uh, well, 
Are we talking about uh, how we explain why it's not a great way to to assess a fielder, or? No, not a fielder. Uh, why it's not? I, I think primarily why it's not a good way to assess a pitcher, uh, or perhaps w- uh, why a pitcher shouldn't get any uh, any kind of leeway because there's an air behind him, or perhaps why the hitter shouldn't get credit for reaching base. I think it's the the defensive thing is I think more obvious and easier to explain. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, well, I mean. I guess, as as Kevin says, it's subjective and often arbitrary. Uh, so that's somewhere to start. Well, uh, sort of, but you know, ninety five percent of them look like heirs to everybody, mm-hmm. right? Most heirs are obviously heirs. It's very rare that there's a, a scoring controversy uh, over whether an heir should be an heir. M- maybe one in maybe one in twenty, but you know, maybe even maybe one in eight or whatever. But that's still a, a, a small minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, of them, I mean, basically, you know, an air when you see it. So why why can't we just say it? Uh, well, certain types of pitchers tend to have more of them, right, and tend to allow more unearned runs. Ground ball pitchers, I, I guess. Okay, so that's it. That's your reason is that ground ball pitchers <laughs> give up more than that? Um, it's not the greatest reason. I don't know. What's your reason? Well, I don't have the greatest reason either. I, the way I explained it to to my friend Dan a few days ago was that um, that basically uh, what you th- what you think you're seeing, which is a ball that should be caught and is not caught, is in fact true of nearly all balls. I mean, like most uh, a a large number of base hits are hit just as poorly as the ground ball directly to the shortstop. Uh, you know, a, a, a and so, so if you're really trying to talk about who deserves credit and who deserves blame, the batter doesn't deserve, uh, or I guess the pitcher doesn't deserve credit for getting that out any more than he would deserve credit for getting, uh, you know, an out on a pop-up that lands in no man's land and goes untouched and is a clean base hit that nobody would dispute. Mm-hmm. In both cases, he got the batter to do something, uh, to, to perform poorly, to hit the ball poorly, uh, and yet because of you know the the bounces that take place behind him uh the batter reached base anyway and so it's actually no less his blame than a large number of base hits i mean i've i've often thought that the, the weirdest thing about baseball and maybe the maybe the least good thing about baseball is the fact that most hits uh especially singles are hits precisely because they weren't hit well enough to be outs mm-hmm. Like if you think about all those balls that land in front of outfielders, those would be outs if they were hit better. And if you think about every ground ball uh, that gets to the infield, that's not what anybody was trying to do. Nobody's really ever, except in rare cases, nobody's ever really trying to hit a ground ball. Uh, And so if somebody gets a ground ball single, they basically have failed but are getting credit for it anyway. We were were talking about that when I wrote the the Marco Scudero article and I was trying to figure out which of his hits were – lucky or unlucky and it was really hard to do with ground balls because it just felt like everyone that went through was kind of lucky unless unless he had some special ability to aim for the holes which it doesn't seem like hitters really have uh then then why give them any more credit for one that does get through the infield than than one that doesn't which is which is kind of disturbing yeah yeah, from the hitter's perspective, a ground ball directly at Derek Jeter that he bobbles and a ground ball one and a half feet to the left of Derek Jeter that he can't reach uh, is the exact same thing. It's I mean, there's basically no difference in process 
that led to those. And so it feels very weird to account them differently, uh, except when it may, I can see I can see using it as a way of measuring Derek Jeter, not as the ultimate way of measuring Derek Jeter, because uh, range and opportunities are also important. But we do want to know if a, if a player is fielding the balls that are hit at him. We do want to be able to measure, uh, you know, his hands and his arm and and, and the, his ability to do these things. So I do think it's it's worthwhile to measure errors for defenders. Uh, I don't think it's a it's worthwhile to measure errors as a way of assigning a portion less blame to the pitcher or stealing a portion less credit from the hitter. Yeah, well, it's I mean it's it's almost impossible to explain. I, I would think it's really complicated to explain the concept of earned runs and unearned runs and ERA to someone who who doesn't know about those things already or who didn't grow up with them. I mean it's. It's such a convoluted way to to measure things that it seems like no one would actually think of it, think of doing it that way if if they were to just wipe the slate clean and and start over again. Um, no one would would suggest that, or it doesn't seem like the best the best way to measure things. Right, it doesn't, and it especially doesn't when you start taking into account things like defensive efficiency and dips theory and catcher framing and you realize that you know maybe 50 percent or I, I don't I don't know exactly but maybe 30 percent of a pitcher's ERA is credited to should be credited to his defender not not credited but is is actually uh, caused by his defenders by the eight guys around him and of that 30 percent errors themselves you know, actual rule book errors that go in the, you know, in the records as unearned runs are probably like 1% of the 30%. Mm -hmm. It's just such a, it's such a, a small step toward trying to, to do this big impossible thing, which, you know, I guess, uh, defense independent stats actually do pretty well. So, uh, there's not a real huge need for it. I don't Mm -hmm. think. Okay. Uh, next question comes from Derek. Uh, he asked a couple questions, but we will answer his second one for now. Uh, if Joe Girardi got 600 plate appearances today, what would we hit? Uh, he was talking about it with a friend of his, and they decided that he would hit something like uh, 50. He would bat 50. Uh, <laughs> he would get on base uh, .075, and he would slug mm. 50. Uh, and then he asks, what current MLB manager would perform best, or any coach for that matter? So he would be 48, just yes, in he's, case anybody's wondering. Yes, he's 48. He is in excellent shape, or appears to be. Uh, but he, I mean, when he when he last played, I guess from his age 37 to 38 seasons, so 10, 11 years ago, he hit 218, uh, 271, 276. So he was, I mean, obviously never a, a good hitter. Wait, where, where, wait, what? Where did you get that number? What did you just say? Uh, 218, 271, 276. That's his last two seasons combined. Oh, his last two yeah, seasons. Yeah, just because the last sorry. one season was 16 games. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. I'm, yeah, I think that baseball needs to have like a seniors tour so that we can, <laughs> so that we can wean all these old guys off the game and get a better sense of the, the true aging curve after, you know, for the, the late, you know, after mid forties on, mm-hmm. cause we basically have n- no idea what, what happens to humans after they turn 45 or so. Right. I mean, Pakoda gives up the, the number of players are just uh, it's such a small yes, sample of players who make it that far, and, and that's, that's and, it. and they've been yeah, and they're, and they're a subset that 
doesn't really fit the rest of the population. So you can't even really extrapolate from them because those are, those are, there's like this huge survivorship bias. And, um, we basically have no idea. For instance, you, you cannot play the, what would Mark Witten do now game. Mm. We have no empirical evidence of what Mark Witten would do now. And I am dying to know what Mark Witten would do now. I mean, I just think it's, I mean, for, for no other reason so that we could answer the question of how good bonds would be, because there's actually some, some relevance. I mean, you do, don't you wonder like what would bonds true average be right now? I mean, at least once a year, at least once a year, I, I guess bonds bonds slash line. Last time I saw him was about half the size of, of bonds the last time he played. Um, so what do you think Bonds would hit? Uh, I mean, he'd still get on base, I would think. Although I don't know, he looks so puny now compared to to but the Bonds who played that maybe pitchers wouldn't be at all intimidated. He is forty eight years old. Also, um, I would think that he could still get on base. Uh, gosh, I don't know. It's it's hard because the his on-base ability was driven by his eye, of course, but right. also so by his incredible power. Uh, and also by his, the lineup behind him and just this weird this weird kind of momentum right. that grew around him. Yeah. It's, it is hard to know how much of the walk rate to credit to yeah. him. So, I don't know. I would guess that he could have a 300 on-base percentage uh, but would get hurt or something. Yeah, I, I think that the the floor that I would give him would be something like like 180, 290, 360. Like that's the floor, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't shock me if he could do like 220, 375, 425 right now. Uh-huh. Uh, and and Joe Girardi. Uh, well, I. I Gosh, you know, Dan- Dennis Eckersley was talking today about. Uh, do you remember the Pepsi commercial where they were like in the cornfield and yeah. like all the, the all the legends right, came out right. of the cornfield mm-hmm. and they, they were, well, J- Dennis Eckersley was actually talking about the the game that they actually had to play for the winners. You know, like the the prize was that these legends would come and play a uh-huh. game against you. You'd get to play against like Dave Winfield, and so they actually played that game and um, <laughs> Pedro Martinez started. And Eckersley relieved him, and he ended up having to go more than an inning. And he, uh, seven months later, he had to have like I think shoulder surgery or something. <laughs> he blew out his arm <laughs> because he he uh, he he got overworked. Uh-huh. Um, so I was uh, I was actually just imagining what uh, like what those guys would do as well. So uh, I would think that for I, I, it's hard to say because Girardi. Um, it's not just his age, it's his inactivity. He hasn't played in 10 mm. years, and he hasn't been... I, I mean, I'm sure he's in good shape for a human, but terrible shape for an athlete. And if he tried to play, I, I imagine that he would be not that much better than you know a, a high school senior who, who can sort of play a little bit right mm. now. Uh, he'd be. I think he'd be basically hopeless. Um, I, I think that the 50-75-50 line, both... Uh, vastly underestimates how many walks you can draw if you're really dedicated to it. Uh, and also, uh, the almost sheer impossibility, I think of, of never getting an extra base hit. Uh, although he's 48 and slow and a catcher and all that, but I would guess something like, uh, 20, 90, 60, (laughs) (laughs) something like that. Uh, uh, do you have maybe 20, 20, 90, 35, Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and then which manager yeah. would be best? Is that part of the question? Uh, I guess Robin Ventura. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, you basically yeah. just what want the, the youngest guy, the, the least removed from playing. And, and I guess it helps that he was a good player. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm scanning the list. I, I don't know. I mean, Mike Matheny is young, but he had to retire and, and wasn't yeah, very he, good Yeah, but he either. had to retire. <laughs> I mean, hitting-wise. He, he, had, he had to retire for... Right. Like health issues, yes. though. I mean, when he retired, what, like 2006? Uh, I don't know. Is that um, it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I would I would probably go with Ventura. Uh, uh-huh. I was kind of struck when I was in the, the Diamondbacks visiting clubhouse a while ago. Everywhere you look in that clubhouse, there is a coach who is like a Hall of Famer or an All-Star. A lot of teams just kind of have marginal major leaguers or i mean not even major leaguers but the diamondbacks just have a bunch of stars for their coaching staff i've been meaning to kind of compare their their career coaching warp to other teams for (laughs) which there's like no reason at all to do which is why i haven't done it yet but I, i will do it at some point but i mean they have kirk gibson is their manager they have don biller as their batting coach Chuck Nagy is their pitching coach, Nagy. Uh, Steve Sachs is their first base coach. Matt Williams is their third base coach. Alan Trammell is their bench coach. So a lot of talent there. Yeah, that's not and not a Hall of Famer in the bunch. There's like six yeah, Hall of Very Gooders or right. Hall of Hall of Nearly Graders. There's a whole yeah. there's a whole sequel to the book in that clubhouse. <laughs> yes. Do I, is there any, do I have any hope? You, you know more about these things than I do and what secret projects BP might have going on. Do, is there any hope of me answering the Mark Witten question in my lifetime? Is there, do you think there's any way that that can ever be calculated? Uh, no. Sorry. Okay. Um, is there, and what age do you think if, if every human being in the world got, uh, like say a thousand at bats, what would be the lat, the oldest age that that any human being would get a hit? Would would any seventy five year old get a hit? <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I mean, I guess if we're talking about uh, however many billion people there are in the world today, there must be some genetic freak out there somehow, somewhere who is seventy five and in the shape of a fifty year old and uh trains every day and plays in some right, so give me a number. so yes give me a number, um, i would and we're counting any any kind of hit even a, a, a infield it's got to leave the, it's got to leave, oh, the, leave infield. the infield mm. uh all right i will i would say there's there's got to be an, an 80 year old who could get a, a pop, <laughs> pop fly that falls in all right so you haven't given me a number yet. All you've 81. done is rule out numbers. All right, 81, and then what about on the low end? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, um, I'll say nine. Nine, yeah. Some kids hit puberty at like eight. <laughs> Definitely nine. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, Isaac asks, I have a quick question for you guys, and I'm not sure if there's a real answer, but which do you find more aesthetically pleasing? A player with a massive amount of natural talent who makes the game seem easy and never appears to show effort, such as Robinson Cano or Ken Griffey Jr., or a player who constantly appears to be busting his ass and giving max effort, and he lists Bryce Harper and Brett Laurie as examples. Um, I would kind of quibble with putting Harper in that second group. I think he's kind of... Really? 
I mean, I don't know. He's kind of a hybrid, isn't he? I mean, I guess. Well, he's got. He's obviously naturally talented, but he's he does. I mean, yeah, he, he does show. He effort. is the king of hustle. He is the king of hustle. He is the. He is like maybe the only player in baseball whose hustle I genuinely appreciate uh-huh. as true hustle, as not not false hustle, not wasted hustle. That is like it is genuine. It is both unnecessary and valuable, and I love uh-huh. it. Uh, I I prefer. I think I prefer the the really smooth looking player. I think. Yeah, I think aesthetically, I appreciate the the smooth looking player. Par- partly because I, I I think if I actually saw it in those sort of moral terms that I feel like Isaac is maybe hinting mm-hmm. at, where uh, if I saw one guy as m- making the most of his abilities and the other is not, for instance, then it, I might I might I might switch. But I mean, I basically think that all these guys are working insanely hard uh, behind the scenes, and that you know Griffey probably worked insanely hard and Garrett Anderson probably worked insanely hard. And so I don't see any less effort, uh, if they're smooth and graceful, uh, on the field. And, and, you know, in the same way, I don't consider Brett Lawry any less naturally talented. It's, it's primarily, uh, it's primarily, it's, it's a style, not a strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would rather watch probably Griffey or Cano swinging all day than, than someone who looks like he's swinging really hard. I don't know. They had really pretty swings, uh, or have in Cano's case. So yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't want to watch any player swing all day. No, probably not. Not just that. Um, okay, next question comes from Lou in Cincinnati, uh, who says that he loves the podcast because it has a Zen quality that differentiates it from the competition. Uh, talking to some non-baseball fan friends while the Reds bullpen was spoiling Cueto's day on Sunday. We got into a discussion uh, on baseball's origins and how so very much of the game was created 150 years ago and remained unchanged since. This led to speculation about how things could have gone differently. My question, what would the game be like if they rotated players like volleyball, either every inning or even every batter? Every player had to be able to man every position. What kind of player would thrive in such an environment? Are we? Do you think we should exempt pitcher and catcher from this? You, uh, I mean, he, he can't yeah, mean pitcher and should, catcher, right? Because yeah. if it were pitcher, if you had to rotate on a pitcher, I think every game would be like twenty-two to sixteen, mm-hmm. and and pitching wouldn't be a skill, and baseball probably wouldn't be that much fun if pitching weren't a skill. Yeah. So yeah, you just had to play all the the regular positions. So I, I mean, I guess uh, in this game you would want Willie Bloomquist. He would be the king. I, I, it's it's a good question because I'm not sure you would. I mean, obviously nobody wants to have Billy Butler playing shortstop for them, but uh, it's only one at bat, uh, you know, out of nine that he's playing shortstop. And you and you do you wonder? And this is probably actually Matt. You know, you could probably figure this out. You could do this. We could do this, Ben. This is an unfiltered that I predict you'll do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could actually figure out where the bar, where the where where the defensive bar is for a player to to make this team assuming that they hit like billy butler or um you know if they're uh, you know if they're if i mean I'm, I'm thinking i'm not talking i don't know if anybody's noticed this i'm, I'm right now i'm not saying once uh-huh. uh but it's uh I'm, I'm not i'm not i'm not sure that that you can assume that it would go the Willie Bloomquist route you, automatically. Right. Well, you, Willie Bloomquist would have a lot more value than he does right now. Yes. 
But on the other hand, you'd waste a lot of Willie Bloomquist time at first base too. Mm-hmm. Although not not a lot, but uh, you know, if you were, for instance, uh, you know, you take a guy like Brendan Ryan, almost totally worthless in that league. So mm-hmm. right, because because his only value is being able to play a position that only like sixteen people in the world can play well, yes. and being able to do that every day. And I mean, if if he were a left fielder just as often as he were a shortstop, he would be completely worthless. And so the idea that you would instantly go to the scrappers, I think, is probably false. I do think that you might see a um, you. I don't. I don't know. I, I'm not sure how many guys. I once asked Kevin Goldstein. Um, of the say ten best defenders in the world, like the ten, the very ten best fielders in the entire world, at any you know any level, any country, how many of them have I heard of? And he said ten. He he says that there's not this class of fielders out there who are like super elite fielders but can't hit even one hundred, uh-huh. um, which shocked me. I would have guessed that 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 there would be probably. 500 Venezuelan shortstops <laughs> who are who are good enough to play shortstop in the majors but not good enough to to hit even even you know even in, at age 27 wouldn't be good enough to hit you know in short season ball mm-hmm. and Kevin doesn't seem to think that's true so um, if you if you assume that kind of uh, non-intuitively uh, it's the case that baseball skills tend to clump in in people um, and that the good fielders are also the good hitters uh, and that there's not this class of guys out there who are really good fielders and could play every position. You might basically, what I'm saying is, you might basically be stuck with the same thousand guys that we see right now, and you would just have to figure out a way to deploy them effectively. And there might be some guys who would get kicked out on the market. Yeah, there's like, certainly. I mean, Travis Hafner like Travis would be Hafner. done. <laughs> right. There you go. Travis Havner couldn't do it, and probably there's a there's probably a lot of catchers. Oh wait, we've we've eliminated catcher from this. Um, but you might end up with a lot of the same guys. I, I think if you had a if if it did go the route where you saw a lot uh, a lot more rounded players and a lot fewer specialists, which basically that's what that's what Billy Butler is, and that's what Brendan Ryan is. They're specialists, right? And and everybody who plays position is in some way or another kind of a specialist. He specializes at his position. Um, I think it would be a lot less fun. I think that in all sports, we like specialists. Uh, we don't like generalists nearly as much. Uh, and I think that shows up in the sort of Hall of Fame voting bias against guys who are good at everything but great at none. Um, so I think that the lack of variety would be bad for the game, but I'm not sure that the lack of variety would actually come anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and we also have a question on... 3-0 swings. Uh, this is from John. He says, I've always wondered why players are so rarely given the green light to swing on a 3-0 count. I understand that you never want to give up an out when a free base is so close, but given the number of mediocre fastballs groove dead center on a nightly basis, it really makes me question the practice. If anything, it seems far more likely that you'll see a slider out of the zone 3-2 than 3-0. If you want a pitch to plant over the fence, 3-0 seems like the absolute best time to look for it. Uh, he then, of acknowledges that if batters did start swinging more pitchers and, and opposing teams would adjust and they would stop grooving so many fastballs, but we haven't gotten to that point. Is there a logical reason behind the red light or is this just another one of baseball's unwritten rules? 
Yeah, I think that uh, there's two things to say here. One is that I don't think pitchers would adjust. Um, I one time looked at Torrey Hunter and Bobby Abreu. Bobby Abreu at that point had never swung at 3-0 or perhaps had swung at 3-0 once as a rookie and had never done it again. This was like 2000 on maybe 10 or 11 that I looked at it. So he had like a 14-year run of never swinging at 3-0. And Torrey Hunter had swung at like half of the 3-0 pitches he'd seen that year. And they were basically equal hitters, uh, you know, roughly speaking, different styles, but roughly speaking, equal hitters at the time. And I looked at um, at whether pitchers pitched either of them differently on 3-0 because of this. And in fact, there was no difference whatsoever. Uh, Abreu actually had seen slightly uh, fewer hittable 3-0 pitches than Hunter had. And I then, uh, so I don't think that pitchers would adjust. I then also looked at um, which had more value uh, which which collected more value from their 3-0 approaches. And Abreu uh, had the better post-3-0 performance uh, of the two um, with more walks and uh, not not uh, a substantially worse ball-in-play rate on 3-0 and afterward. And so I think that's one... So those are two things. I said there were going to be two things. The third thing, though, I think, is that there's a, a little bit of, I think, of a false idea that... 3-0 pitches are constantly being grooved right down the middle. Uh, in fact, pitchers are terrible at throwing the ball where they want to throw it. And even if they're trying to throw it down the middle, I think that a smaller percentage than you realize are actually in that really fat sweet spot. Um, if you watch closely starting now, I think that you'll start noticing that 3-0 pitches actually are all over the strike zone. Uh, a lot of times they're not in the strike zone and they're called strikes because three of the 3-0 auto strike call. Um, but it isn't really the case that you're just getting this constant stream of balls on the tee. You're still getting pitches uh, that are, you know, you know, a few inches uh, from the, the middle of the zone or sometimes still on the edge of the zone or sometimes out of the zone. Um, and, you know, you still have to decide whether that's your pitch. And just because it's a pretty good pitch to us doesn't mean that it's necessarily uh, the perfect pitch for hitters. And, you know, they they know that the pressure's on the pitcher to throw three in a row. So I, I actually... Uh, for most of my life, agreed that pitch that batters should be swinging at 3-0 much more, and I've uh, become a late convert, uh, partly because of what I looked at, and partly just because uh, it makes sense to me now the way that they do it. There was a, a BP mailbag thing that Dan Brooks and Harry Pavlidis did last year, uh, where someone asked them how often major leaguers swing on 3-0 counts, and and they said it was uh, something like. Uh, Seven percent of the time, is what is what their answer was. Um, but that when the pitch was a strike or in the in the strike zone, in the typical called strike zone, uh, they only swing like nine point seven percent of the time, uh, up mm-hmm. from seven percent. So uh, I mean, a very small increase depending on whether whether the pitch is actually in the strike zone or not, and. And those rates are, they said, nearly tenfold less than how often better swing on 3-2 counts in the zone. Uh, so I still tend to, to lean towards the idea that swinging more would make more sense. I, I mean, I think I think there, there would be an adjustment if there were a, a league-wide change. Um, and I guess we could, I mean, if we had the data, we could check this because batters are swinging less often on 3-0 counts now than they used to. Um, so if we if we had pitch effects for a couple dec- decades ago, then we would know if if pitchers had adjusted. But uh, 
I mean, if you just look at those isolated examples of Abreu and Hunter, I can imagine that some pitchers are probably very diligent about studying scouting reports and hitter tendencies and would know for sure that that Abreu never swings at 3-0 and Hunter swings half the time on 3-0. But I think a lot of pitchers also go on just their own experience and their own memory on facing a hitter before. And you don't get to 3-0 all that often on on hitters. So I could imagine that a, a good number of pitchers, most pitchers probably wouldn't have the sort of sample size from personal experience to say that Abreu never swings uh, and Hunter swings a lot. So unless they yep. were studying those scouting reports and looking at some printout that the coaches might have, they wouldn't necessarily know that it was anything close to that extreme. But I would think that if there were an entire shift, uh, you know, and the whole league suddenly started swinging more often on 3-0, that is something that would become apparent and that they would adjust to. Good point. Okay. All right. Uh, that's enough questions then. Thank you for sending them. You can send us more at podcast at baseballperspectus.com, and we will be back tomorrow.